Please pardon our dust, but we are under construction for a few weeks and we'll have to be releasing some older episodes that were some of our favorites getting ready for Halloween. The New Mexico State Pen and the Black Monk. Enjoy. Come gather round the campfire and hear our ghostly tales of chilling terrors, darkest woes, and anything that goes bump in the night. So cuddle up with your best friend or dare it alone. The darkness is closing in and spirits are calling your name. This is Fireside Phantoms. The New Mexico State Pen was host to the worst prison riot in United States history on February 2nd and 3rd, 1980, resulting in 12 guards being taken hostage 33 inmates losing their lives and 200 plus inmates getting injured. I had never heard of it's this. It's a really dark and grim story. I'm going to just go over kind of a little bit about what happened, but I'm not going to go into all the details. Um, no more warning we'll... labels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know that everyone needs to hear all the details. We'll just go into some of the reasons why the riot happened in the first place. And then there is a supernatural tie into this, which is why I'm putting it on our show. Great. Okay. Fantastic. The riot happened, uh, like I said, February 2nd and 3rd, 1980. Um, There were many causes for this riot. Some of them included prison overcrowding. On the night of the riot, there was about 1,156 inmates, but only beds for about 963 people. Oh, my gosh. Um, The guards themselves didn't want to go. They, They had sleeping rooms called dormitories where they had many beds and many prisoners in one room together. The guards didn't like to go into those dormitories because they could easily become overpowered by all those prisoners in there. Right. So they kind of left them to their own devices. Like, you guys are on your own. And so they made, the the prisoners would make homemade beer. Uh, They would get into fights and they would participate in gang rape in those dormitories. It was pretty common. Wow. There was no one there to stop it. So the food was horrible and somewhat dangerous. The prison was unsanitary and had the presences of cockroaches and mice or the presence, I'm sorry, the presence of cockroaches and mice. Um, And intestinal disease was quite common throughout the prison. It was poorly managed and organized by staff and guards. Uh, For example, um, first-time nonviolent prisoners were not adequately separated from repeat violent prisoners. And many times they were housed together. So you might be a 21-year-old who got caught for shoplifting, thrown into a dormitory with rapists and murderers. Wouldn't be unheard of in the New Mexico State Pen. That's awful. Yeah. Also, their educational, recreational, and rehabilitative programs were canceled, leading to inmates being locked down for long periods of time. This also added to anger and the deprivation that they felt locked in their cells that they couldn't have access to anything. They were just stuck where they were. Also, communication between the officers and the inmates was poor, and their policies in the prison were inconsistent. There was also rage over the way a work strike by inmates was handled by the prison in 1976. Inmates started striking because of the prison's poor conditions. Mm -hmm. So the deputy warden, Robert Montoya, had tear gas thrown at them. And as they were exited the dormitory coughing from the gas, they were stripped naked and run hundreds of yards down the central corridor past a gauntlet of officers who beat them with axe handles. Oh, wow. Nice. It was pretty bad. The biggest thing that the prison system of New Mexico did to them at that time, which was 
kind of the pinnacle part of this riot, actually, was that they came up with the snitch program. And essentially what ah, they did was the they... snitch. The they, golden snitch. The golden snitch. They pitted uh, inmate against inmate by saying, you have to rat out this person or that person. Right. And then they made it very clear to everyone in the prison population who the snitches were. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. The, no, they, they wanted them to kill each other. Yes, they did. Totally. Yes, they did. They and were I, encouraging it. I think, too, that there had been other riots in other prisons throughout the country. And most of the time, those were the prisoners wanting together and going after the guards and the administration. Mm -hmm. So this was their way of making sure that the prisoners could not bond together by turning them against each other constantly. So what they did is they took the snitches and they put them on cell block four, which was considered protective custody. So they put them all in the same cell block together. Nice. So that's kind of the, the scene that's set for what's about to happen. A lot of the snitches, not there was a, a couple of the snitches that were in cell block four who, whose information caused life sentences for other prisoners within the prison of New Mexico. So oh, they wow. were all housed right there together. And some of these guys were in there for life because of somebody on cell block four and what they said. So there was a shit yeah. ton of animosity. You don't have a mark on your head after that. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it was basically um, gasoline waiting for the match is yep. essentially what it was. In the early morning hours of February 2nd, 1980, guards were having to do their head count. Now, a lot of times the guards in New Mexico didn't even bother to do a head count because it was so dangerous for them to do. It was so easy. There was two, maybe three guards that would do the head count at a time. And walking into a room of 150 people. I would make them sit in a circle and just do duck, duck, goose really quick. <laughs> duck, right? Duck, I mean, they duck, wouldn't, goose. They weren't even run. sure how many prisoners they had in the prison because the guards would just call them the same number every night, but they didn't actually go and do the checks because they were so scared to do the checks. This, um, yeah. This was crazy. It was bad. I mean, it was really bad. The guards that had to go that night, they said they're, they're always scared to go do the counts, especially at night. So they have to go in and they just kind of look around and see and then they would get out of there. Mm -hmm. But when they went to do their check, um, some of the prisoners took them down and took them and locked them into a room and took their keys and started letting out everyone that they could find. They unlocked all the cell doors. Yeah. And then they Except ran... Except for cell block four of the snitches. Well, it's coming. Oh. -ho. It's coming. They ran down the corridor. The other guards saw them and realized that there was no way... Because they were trying to protect the keys for all the dormitories. And they realized there was no way they could do it. So they bailed. Right. So a couple of the guards got away, but 12 of them were kept. Um, and then the, the prisoners decided the best thing for them to do would be to head to the pharmacy. And get high <laughs> of as fuck. Yeah. Of so course. they went to the pharmacy, got their hands on all the drugs, and then they ran to the, the bathroom and started shooting up shit as fast as they could. Got high as kites. And then the next stop was cell block four. Because, you know, prisoners that are in together, they party together. They sure do. <laughs> so they basically a lot of the um, investigation after the riot said that the majority of the riot and the violence that ensued from it was from a small group of men. Mm -hmm. So this group of men said, let's go to cell block four because right. the men that have put us in here for life are there and they're waiting for us. So they get to cell block four, they walk in and when the guards had abandoned the post, the main post, they threw a switch that made it so the prisoners couldn't open the doors of the cells in cell block four. That was like the last that was thing they nice could do. <laughs> so thoughtful before they yeah, bailed. That was so nice. <laughs> so they threw the switch and the prisoners realized they couldn't get in 
to mm -hmm. these individual cells. And these prisoners were like, thank God, my, my cell is protecting me, right? Right. Well, the prisoners left and they went looking around and there had been a construction crew who had been there uh, the mm -hmm. day before working with blowtorches. And ah. they were like, oh, look, they left their blowtorches. Now we can get How in. convenient. Mm -hmm. So they went back to cell block four and they started slowly blowing through each of the cell bars and taunting their victims slowly as they were getting ready to come in and take them. And so that was where the majority of what went down during this riot happened. Um, 16 men on that block were murdered. The other prisoners that were not part of this execution crew that was going to cell block four, they went outside and they were begging the police that were surrounding the perimeter of the prison to help them. They were like, we don't want to be murdered. Please get us out of here. And that was the majority of the prisoners were like begging to be released or begging for help. Come in, stop these guys like they were scared. I mean, because it was so bad that they knew. And not, not the majority of them were not necessarily in danger, but it was so chaotic and crazy in there that they were terrified and they wanted help to get out or protected or something. And did the police help them? No, they didn't. The police didn't do anything. The police just stayed on the perimeter. The National Guard was called in and they all just hung out there because those prisoners still had 12 uh, guards in their possession. And they were worried if they stormed the prison that those guards' lives would be taken. Meanwhile, the guards that were in the prison were being tortured and beaten and raped by the prisoners. So it was real bad for everybody involved in this situation. I mean, it's a it's a really bad story. I yeah, mean, it's, it's a really, really dark story. This is crazy. Yeah. I and I don't even remember hearing it. Well, it was 1980. I mean, you were uh -oh. probably Josh is reading the details and he's it's, he's going to have nightmares it's, tonight. It is a nightmarish yeah. story. Sorry. Yeah. It's, it's a nightmarish story. Wow. Just yeah, just a little bit of it was those mm -hmm. torches. Yeah, it's pretty bad. So you and I were kids when this happened. I wouldn't yeah. have known anything about it. Um, so anyway, I was a baby. You're just I a was baby. a little baby. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, 60 men were murdered on cell block four. 33 died. A lot of them died from drug overdoses because they were able to get access <laughs> to the drugs, which I thought was interesting. So by the afternoon of February 3rd, the riot was actually over and the prisoners surrendered to the police and the National Guard. Now, from what I also read was that um, there were no real, <laughs> no real charges or anything brought against anybody. I read that one prisoner got an additional nine years tacked onto a sentence, but that was about it. Well, probably because they knew that the guards basically weren't keeping them separrated a well lot yeah of the it wasn't fault. necessarily on the guards it was on the administration the, the fault way was the, the administration entire prison was, was being run. run was horrible and the snitch program is really what totally ended up being the reason this riot happened plus they had like 12 guards for like a thousand prisoners i mean it's like come on that's not realistic. Mm -mm. So there was a lot of issues that kind of led up to this. But they didn't really press any charges. There was no real justice after this. It was just the thing that happened. And it was easily the worst one in the United States history. So where does the supernatural element to this come from? Where um, does the supernatural element of this come <laughs> from, Holly? So, of course, you know, <laughs> thanks, Carol, for asking. The reason that I'm reading this show up or this story up on our podcast is that um, there's a show I like called The Dead Files. Ah, oh, The Dead Files. The Dead Files. And that is a show where they pair a psychic, her name is Amy Allen, with a retired New York City homicide detective named Steve DeShavi. And they go and investigate paranormal activity, homes and businesses and stuff like that. Is that like the married couple where you thought her husband was hot? No. 
Oh, yes. That yeah, is the yeah. guy? Yeah, because... And then they get divorced? Yeah, they got divorced, yeah. Um, she... Probably because he found out she was a liar. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no. Sorry, Amy. No. Anyway, <laughs> they went to the New Mexico State Pen and did that walk. And that's actually the first time I even learned about this story at all. So um, that's the reason I kind of thought this would be a good one to do. Um, so that episode is actually in season one. So when they went, Steve... His job is to interview the people surrounding the property. So people who have worked there, people um, who have had experiences there. And so he talked to a former guard. The prison itself where this all happened has now been shut down and deserted. I don't think they use it anymore. I think they might use parts of it, but for the most part, the prison's been shut down. He talked to a guy who had been a former guard there. He wasn't there during the riots, but he had worked there for a number of years. And so when he was talking to him, um, he said that when he was being um, uh, trained to work at that prison, that he, they were told, you will experience paranormal activity in this prison. And that Every, was before the riot after, happened? Well after the riot happened. Okay. It was in, I think he worked there in the 90s. And they were told him, you will experience paranormal activity. And Steve Deshavi, who is a, you know, hard-nosed cop, is like, they talked about this stuff in your training, in your official training? He was like, yes. And then he said, have you seen stuff? He goes, yes, we've all seen stuff here. Even the prisoners have seen stuff. We've all seen stuff here. So it was, amazing. it was so prevalent that they actually brought it up before he started his job there, which I thought wow. was amazing that it's that haunted. Yeah. And what, for training, Yeah, I wonder if they were like, this is what you do. You don't shoot at invisible I, I phantoms wish, because they're they not real. I wish more detail about yeah, it. Yeah, that would be pretty interesting. And in fact, I've listened to interviews that Steve Ashavi has given about the New Mexico State Pen. And he said that, you know, they only have an hour worth of show. He goes, we could have gone and easily made that a two or three hour show. He goes, there was so much information. There were so many stories. There were so many things about that specific episode or that specific place that we could have gone into. He goes, but we just didn't have time. It's TV. We had to cut it down to an hour. He goes, but it was by far like one of the biggest, most haunted places we've been. What so, were some of the things that people saw or heard? Um, so things moving. Uh, the guard said he saw a shadow person, um, just little things like that. Um, so in 2013, a local news crew went to the prison for Halloween to see if they could find evidence of hauntings. Awesome. That's on YouTube. Oh, see, they beat us. They went there I on know, Halloween. Right? I know. Shoot. Dang. So the video on YouTube shows them go into the prison at night with a tour guide. They can hear doors slamming shut in the distance. Their video equipment becomes super glitchy. The batteries in one of their audio rec recorders dies. And when they leave the prison, they turn on that same recorder and the batteries work and are fully charged. Of course they are. So, and they always say uh, that when you're in an area that's got a right. lot of ghostly activity. Um, electronics don't electronics work. Electronics don't work. Yeah. And so that was pretty interesting. But yeah, she said that it's just, um, Amy said that it's a very, very um, haunted location. And in fact, because she's a physical medium, which means she feels everything in her body and things make her sick. After this was over, I think she ended up in the hospital for a couple of days because the area drained her so much. Holy cow. Mm-hmm. So that's the New Mexico State pen. <laughs> Penitentiary. That is that. <laughs> every week you astound me with like. <laughs> the worst stories possible. Yeah. I'm like, where does she find these god awful stories? It's a bad one. It's really bad. That's why I didn't want to go into specific detail. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's 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 a creepy, creepy prison. Yeah. It makes you really rethink petty crimes. Right. And the fact that, you know, 
you could be in the same you could facility be in, in those days. Yeah, I, I would crazy think crazy criminals to the New Mexico. This event managed to change prison uh, policies across the nation mm-hmm. because, you know, they don't want this happening again. This was pretty bad. I think that it helped. I would like to believe and I don't know if it's true. The prisons are better taken care of now they're better organized their policies are better um now because of the riot and because of what happened in new mexico so yeah Yeah, i even think they get internet now Uh, yeah i well i don't know i mean hbo they get to watch game of thrones (laughs) they get to play pool and well maybe not game of thrones because that might give them some ideas (laughs) true yeah that's true the red wedding but Yeah. yeah i i definitely think being a prison guard has got to be one of the worst jobs oh yeah yeah, like, and in the YouTube documentary about the riot, they did interview a guard, and he said that he would wake up screaming because he thought he was still in that prison during the riot. Like, he had, oh. I mean, it was really traumatizing what they did to him. That's amazing that that medium wound up in the hospital after this. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she did. Um, I think I read that somewhere. But, yeah, I mean, it totally drained her because it made her so sick. And she's scared in this one. Usually when she does her walks, she not, she's not normally scared. This one you can tell she's very uneasy and she's, she said she's really nervous because of that weird dark entity she could see in the show. I don't know. Ugh. Like I said, I, I think there's probably something to that. So. Well, yeah. well thanks, Holly. Thanks, I'm glad girl. we recorded this in the morning so I don't have to go to sleep now and have <laughs> nightmares. Or drive home in the dark. Or drive home in the dark. It's probably best we did it during the day. Yeah. I'm going to talk about a property, and it's all the way over in England. Ooh. I know we're wrenching way, way out here. Yeah, yeah. And it's located on 30 East Drive in Pontefract, England. Oh. I don't even know where that is. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. But I'm sure a lot of the English people will know where that is. Sure. This house is so haunted, Holly, but it looks like any other regular house on the street. It's just this modest three-bedroom, semi-detached brick home, and it was common in the area around the 1950s. However, this house, don't be deceived by its looks, because it is known for such an evil entity, it is believed to be the most violent poltergeist. Ooh, really? In Europe. Oh, wow. And it's been making its presence known for more than 55 years and is active to this day. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I've really built up the story. But back in August 1966, the Pritchard family, Jean, Joe, and their two teenage children, Philip, 15, and Diane, 13, moved into their new house on 30 East Drive. Okay. The first of many strange paranormal occurrences started when their parents and daughter, Diane, went away on a short vacation. And they left their teenage son, Philip, with his grandmother, Sarah, at the house. Sarah said that a strong cold descended into the house like a strong wind. Oh, There we go again. Wind. (laughs) Wind again. Beware the wind. (laughs) And, you know, not that cold wind is a big deal, but it was a really hot summer day. So they were like, this is strange. That's weird. Uh, We've got built-in air conditioning here. But if you think Uh, about it, wind is creepy because... If you think about those like horror movies, the lightning's crashing, it's mm-hmm. windy outside. It is. You know, there's something creepy about wind. Spirits, I think, can move more freely in the wind. Maybe the wind blows them into town. Probably. Yeah. It is very eerie. I agree. Yeah. So after this happened, Sarah said that 
there seemed to be snow coming down from the ceiling as hmm. this cold wind was circulating. Hmm. And instead of snow, it was more like this white chalk, but it was falling from the ceiling all around. Of course, you and I know it's probably asbestos yeah, that, probably they, were, popcorn that they were experiencing. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, simultaneously <laughs> that this was going on, there were loud bangings heard above them on the second floor. Hmm. Okay. So they went upstairs to investigate, and as they were doing that, they started seeing these pools of water forming in front of their eyes on the floor. Huh. And uh, the pools of water were also happening, you know, where the kitchen was and everything. So they thought that a pipe broke, and they called a plumber to come in. Uh-huh. The plumber came in that very evening, but they couldn't offer an explanation as to what was happening. There was no leaks. There was no broken pipe. So they said, well... Good luck with that. Mop it up and pay me anyway for coming over because, you know, it's middle of the night. Right. So after that happened, the same night, pots and pans started clanging. And then there was this heavy chest of drawers, I guess, that began swaying like it was, you know, experiencing an earthquake. And so Sarah and Philip just felt very unsafe in the home. So they left that evening and went and slept at the neighbor's house. Okay. So when the rest of the family returned home from their vacation, there was no disturbances. So... They had no proof that they had seen this or anything else. And so then they think they're going crazy. Yeah, they, they were like, no um, I'm sure it was just a logical explanation. Yeah. There's no activity in this house. It's sure. fine. Well, so they lived in peace for another two years. And then all of a sudden, this activity started up again. Mm-hmm. And again, pots and pans would rattle around. At the same time, the whole kitchen area, and I love this, was sprayed with tea. Because you know how the English love their tea. <laughs> um, it was as if some unseen force repeatedly pressed the button on the tea dispenser and was just spraying tea <laughs> all over the place like a mad hatter. And you get um, tea, and you get tea. And, and you, you get, get tea. tea. <laughs> the cupboards and the furniture of the kitchen would move about without explanation or apparent cause. And the hallway light would also switch on and off by itself, even as they were watching the switches. Hmm. It was noticed that a plant holder that was normally at the foot of the stairs was now sitting at the top of the stairs. Oh, wow. So it had moved. Yeah. And again, pools of water just started forming again all over the house. So, you know, with this activity going on, they didn't know what to think. Um, Furniture again was moved and rattled. And I love this one. Odd green foam was seeping out of the water taps and the toilet. Oh, weird. That is crazy. That is totally a hallmark of a haunted house, too. When you've got some kind of weird, either black or green sludge coming out of your faucets, that totally means, okay, call uh, an exorcist. Roto-Rooter, please come back. No, no, no (laughs) Roto-Rooter, an exorcist, please, because this is definitely demon shit right now. (laughs) Well, it just, all this stuff kept escalating, and... This is where it gets ominous. The family portraits and furniture would also be found demolished or slashed and disfigured with a knife. Ooh. So, you know, kind of menacing. Yeah, totally. There were also unidentified sickening odors that happened throughout the home. And, you know, because if it was just coming from the bathroom, we might say that's not unusual at all. But when it's coming from all over the house, you got to wonder, like, you know, what are they being fed? Yeah. And this happened nearly every day. So it was so commonplace that the family took to calling the invisible entity Fred. Ah, Fred. There were many neighbors and people from the town who would witness these events. And a lot of them were pretty humorous. So one time a set of keys came crashing down the chimney and it had every key to the house on it. 
um, but also an unusual big medieval-looking iron key, which didn't belong to the house. Right. So that's interesting. And there was an endless list of levitating and thrown objects, including a solid oak sideboard. The local press started reporting on the incidents and referred to the invisible entity as Mr. Nobody, even though the family still called it Fred. In fact, many of Fred's activities were entertaining. There was a story of an aunt bragging about how she didn't believe in spirits, and out of nowhere, a floating pitcher of milk was calmly poured over her head. (laughs) (laughs) But over time, these things started to become more and more sinister. When, in addition to this, this malicious entity started to make itself visible as a full apparition. At first, these visitations appeared to the parents, who would wake up in the middle of the night and see a dark, shadowy shape standing at the foot of their bed staring at them, but immediately would vanish. Then there was other occasions where they claimed to have been awoken to see a figure in flowing black robes hovering over their bed. Now, I think this might have been a Dementor, you know. It's England, after all. But it was described this way as being dressed in black robes mm-hmm. with a hood covering its face, mm-hmm. not unlike what you might imagine a medieval monk might wear. Right. Or a Dementor right. from Harry Potter. Right. But anyway, so Fred would soon become forever known as the Black Monk. Oh, okay. So that's the, the name black that finally monk. stuck with him. Okay. Before long... The black monk was seen by everyone in the family and was even claimed to have been spotted outdoors on the property, lurking by neighbors and other locals. Like a peeping Tom? Yeah, maybe. He was just like (laughs) taking a walk around the house, maybe. Maybe monk is not the right name. Maybe it should be the the peeping perv. Maybe. The entity started to focus its malicious torments on the daughter, Diane. And its attacks on her grew in violence. The girl would sometimes wake up with scratches and bruises on her body. Her covers were yanked off repeatedly. And sometimes she was completely thrown from her bed. Hmm. Well, that's probably because she was, you know, one of those sleeping teenagers who didn't get up, slept till noon, didn't do her <laughs> chores. Get your butt up. Yeah. You're going to miss school. Yeah. But on so he's at kind least, of fatherly is what you're saying? Yeah. he's. Oh. I don't know. Okay. It gets worse. Probably not. (laughs) On at least one occasion, she was actually choked and slapped around by an unseen force in full view of witnesses. I like him. I like him. Well, (laughs) you wouldn't if you were a witness there because they were also shoved, slapped, and poked also. Wow. Yeah. So this entity was getting more and more violent. Perhaps the scariest incident happened when Diane's hair was seen to stand up as if someone was pulling and yanking on it. After which the girl was forcibly dragged up the stairs, screaming, and bruises formed on her neck after the incident happened. Okay. So the local authorities and several priests were called into the home at that point, um, and they also witnessed all these paranormal events. Mm-hmm. The Pritchard family reached out to the church for help, and there were several exorcisms performed on the property, all of which just seemed to make the spirit even angrier. Sometimes furry women's gloves would float around conducting music in the air as liturgical hymns were solemnly being sung in order to bless the home. Hmm. And during these attempted exorcisms, crucifixes were supposedly knocked out of hands or smashed to pieces and inverted crosses were sometimes found painted or scrawled upon the walls in red or black ink. Oh. Very tattooish. Huh. And sometimes gold. Ooh. 
Interesting. Yeah. In one incident, an invisible force picked up a candlestick and held it in front of the priest's face, which was enough to just end the exorcism right there. He, right. He ran away, never came back to yeah, the Yeah, I wouldn't blame him. So the desperate family also had paranormal investigators come in. Mm -hmm. And this was interesting because one of the investigators, Tom Kuniff, had researched the house and had found that the area once had been a site of a war battle. Oh, okay. So, you know, it does, like you were saying, you know, properties hold energy. They can absorb things. And yeah. Yeah, it's true. You know, you do want to know your history yeah. uh, wherever, wherever you are. Yeah, for sure. Um, and also, it had been once used as the town gallows, like right nearby. Mm -hmm. And hundreds of people had been executed. In particular, there was supposedly a Cluniac monk. Hmm. What's a Cluniac monk? I, I know, I'm getting to that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> the Cluniac monk who was hung after being found Is guilty. George Clooney? I know, monk? I knew you were going to say that. When I was, sorry. when I had the story, I'm like, Holly's going to say something about George She's totally Clooney. Like a remark about George Clooney. You know why you I knew that? You know me so well. You know why I knew that? Because I was thinking that too. I'm like, I wonder if Clooney's really share a brain. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. So this Cluniac monk was hung after being found guilty of raping and killing a young girl who was similar to Diane's age. Oh. I think 14 around there. Oh, okay. And his body was then disposed of down an abandoned well. Oh, that's even um, creepier. Yeah. And this took, the, uh, I mean, this took place back in the 16th century during the reign of Henry VIII. So this happened way before. Was it one of Henry VIII's wives? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> one of his many, many wives. His many wives. It's believed by some that this is the spirit haunting the home. So I was going to ask you, how much do you know about Cluniac monks, Holly? I know pretty much nothing, <laughs> especially that George Clooney has nothing to do with being a monk. Well, I was curious because I thought, well, maybe if I knew more about Cluniac monks, it would kind of help me understand the behavior of this entity. The Pontefract Priory, though, did exist... Um, so we do know that there was a Cluniac monastery. This particular monastery only had about 16 to 20 monks, and they abided by the rule of silence. So they were like a reformed, uh, you know, offshoot of the Order of St. Benedict. Okay. But this is the funny part. So they only talked or sung when participating in the services. So they had like three or four services every day of right. masses right. Um, to get around that whole thing. And they were known for their love of lavish feast days, including larger portions of food, wine, and ale than any of the other orders. So, How do I get into this order? Yeah, yeah. Um, the clothing that they wore was all black. So oh, okay. it does fit the description of how the monk looked. Yeah. And they didn't indulge in labor of any kind or studies unless they were novices to the order, which... I love this place. Oh, I know. <laughs> which, in that case, they were confined to the kitchens to just observe meal preparations. So, oh, just have to observe it? That's yeah, all they have to yeah. do? Yeah, so they were just, like, observing the meal preparations. Maybe they'd move a dish from one counter to the other. Why is that guy um, angry? Why was they he had so servant. angry? That's the perfect life. Well, so this is the thing. The Pritchards... Okay, they had observed that he would occasionally wear gloves, right? Okay. And he would be conducting in these invisible, uh, I mean, these gl floating gloves would be around the house. Well, right. Yeah. I researched this. It used to be common for bishops in that time to be given ceremony gloves to wear while conducting the mass in order to keep the holy sacrament pure. So it was almost like the monk was making fun of it 
or like pretending he was the bishop huh. when they were doing the exorcism okay. and doing the singing and everything. Right. Um, and the fact that all that his activities centered around the kitchen mainly, mm-hmm. he was throwing things around and stuff. Maybe he was confined to the kitchen and he was like, God dang it, I'm dead and I'm still confined to this kitchen. Dude, um, what would you do if you had to make a big meal in that kitchen? I would be like, no, we're going out. I don't yeah, want to I go w- in the kitchen. I wouldn't all. be around flying yeah, cutlery. No, heck no. no way. No way. But, you know, they didn't seem to be that bothered because they lived there for a very long time. And these hauntings or this activity would come in cycles. So it would come on really, really strong for a year or two and then they'd have a couple of years without anything. Weird. Huh. Um, eventually, the Pritchards did move out, and the house was purchased by a movie producer Oh, who um, wanted to... He had heard about the story and mm-hmm. wanted to produce a movie. And since then, he's turned it into um, kind of a rental where ghost hunters can go and rent out a week oh. to stay there. See, that's actually a really smart idea, I yeah. think. Yeah. So they moved out, and this producer bought the house... And there's been so many ghost hunting stories about people going and the activity is still at an all-time high there. Wow. There's a long waiting list about a year to get in. Really? But we should go. At midnight on Halloween? On Friday the 13th. Yeah. Or the Friday the 13th. Totally. When are we going? It's interesting, though, because there's specific rules if you're going to stay there. One is no Ouija boards. No Ouija boards. But that's like the best thing to have if you're going to go talk to a ghost. Well, the, they say it makes it a lot worse. And no drinking, so we may not go there. Yeah, no, that rules let's us not out. Go. Let's not go. Um, and performing exorcisms. So you can't go there and do like a house clearing or exorcism because all these things have, you know, just made the situation a lot worse. Hmm. And, you know, they're okay with the entity when it's not violent. But they don't want to piss it off to the point where people are actually fearful for their life. Right. So So this all of these ghost hunters coming in there doesn't piss it off? I would think it would. Well, as long as they're respectful, the ghost is okay. I mean, the ghost, one of the ghost's favorite trick to play mm-hmm. is, um, and it, he's got like a humorous side of him, is move marbles around. Okay. So he'll like make marbles appear out of nowhere. And he'll roll them down the, you know, stairs, down the hallway. Sometimes he'll drop them through the ceiling. And guests will say when they get home, they'll find marbles in their purse or in their suitcase, like as a going away gift from the ghost. (laughs) So, I mean, the ghost is evil. Yeah. But he also at times has a sense of humor. Hmm. My theory, Holly, is that the pools of water that are forming mm-hmm. from time to time yeah. are because he was thrown down a well, Ugh. an abandoned well. Ugh. So it's like it's like that horror movie. What yeah. were you thinking yeah, about? Yeah, the rain. Oh, um, yeah, where Samara. When she gets thrown or, down in the well and that's where, you know, uh, they, yeah, it's so creepy. That was the scariest so thing. Creepy. One yeah. time my daughter played a trick on me. It was early in the morning. I wasn't quite awake yet. And she came in and she has that long, dark black yeah, hair. Yes, yes. And she was about, I think she was probably about eight years old. And she had seen <laughs> previews of this movie on TV, but right. never saw the movie. But she came in and she had known I had seen the movie yeah. the night before. Yeah. So she came in. I'm barely awake. I'm groggy. She pulls her hair all in front of her face <laughs> and she goes, seven days, mother. Seven days. <laughs> My daughter. I would have kicked her out of the house so hard. (laughs) I was so, she thought it was the funniest thing ever. She was like, you were so scared. I'm like, yes, I was scared. Oh my God, that would freak me out. I thought you were Samara. (laughs) Come to like kill me. (laughs) 
I'm going to start today and I'm going to talk about the uh, New Mexico State Penitentiary. Ooh. Am I saying that correctly? Penitentiary. <laughs> Penitentiary. <laughs> no, that sounds wrong. In, I think you're putting an extra R at the end. Am I? Penitentiary. 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 No. I'm going to. Penitentiary. <laughs> I'm going to talk about the New Mexico State oh my Penitentiary. Oh gosh, I can't say that word either. That's not an easy word to say. God damn it. As the flames die down, do remain undaunted. Though all hitchhikers are ghosts, and all dolls are definitely haunted. Hey guys, be sure to follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at Fireside Phantoms. If you have a spooky story you would like to share with us, send it to firesidephantoms at gmail.com, and you may hear it on a future episode.